This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Synthetics the liquidity layer for DeFi derivatives. With Synthetix V3, any protocol can now tap into Synthetix liquidity to bootstrap derivatives markets. You'll hear more about Synthetix later in the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Empire. We have two very special guests. Uh, we have Kyle and Tushar from Multicoin Capital. Um, I've gotten to know uh, both of them uh, as an investor in Multicoin. I Vividly remember reading one of Kyle's first blog posts and thought, okay, this is interesting. I don't necessarily agree with everything here, but it struck me as um, pretty interesting takes. And that led me to reach out to them. And, you know, I follow their journey um, over the years. Um, and uh, really, uh, I think the combination of both Tushar and Kyle is very interesting. Um, and so anyways, we this should be a great episode. Um, recapping everything that's been going on lately and also um, some of their theses uh, as they see the space going forward. So Kyle, Tushar, welcome back to Empire. Excited to have you guys on. Thanks for having us. Good to be back on the show, guys. I want to spend a lot of this podcast th- like thinking about kind of updated thesis around uh, Solana, like other L1s, different ecosystems, things that you guys are excited about right now. But I think there's this kind of like elephant in the room about, you know, Multicoin was kind of riding higher than any other fund out there. I think you guys avoided some of the like mid 2022 snafus like Terra Luna and stuff like that. But then you did get caught up with some of the FTX stuff. And because FTX was so involved with Solana, you guys got hit kind of twice with Solana stuff and FTX stuff and haven't really heard from you guys since then. So did just want to like address the elephant in the room. And I think a good starting point is like, how did you get so intertwined with FTX? And like, what was the relationship there? What like what did that look like? Sure, I guess I'll, I'll start, and then sure, feel free to to add on top of this. So, you know, we we Sam pitched us to the FTT seed round in I think March April twenty nineteen. We did not invest uh, at that time, uh, but we certainly watched FTX kind of grow. I think the exchange lost in May or June of twenty nineteen, and we kind of watched it grow in those early days. And by the end of twenty nineteen, we started to think, hey, this this exchange is pretty interesting. Um, Solana then launched its blockchain about three months later in March, April of 2020. Uh, and right around that same time, uh, uh, DeFi kind of started to get interesting. You started to see governance go live with Compound. Liquidity mining would launch in March, excuse me, in June of 2020. Now it'll like kick off DeFi summer. Uh, at the time, I remember Sam was tweeting pretty aggressively about DeFi, and I was like pretty intrigued with, with what they were building at FTX. And it was pretty clear that they wanted to do something with DeFi. Um, so reached out to Sam at that time. It was like, Hey, uh, what are you doing? Like, you're obviously trying to do something. And he's like, yeah, I'm trying to build something on, on EVN and we, we just can't make it work. And I was like, you should check out the Solana thing. Uh, and at the time Solana was three months old. No one had heard of it and, uh, no one took it particularly seriously. That was kind of the start of our formal relationship with, with Sam. Uh, we did invest in Serum, um, which announced, which launched like 30 days later, um, and then as FTX kind of grew in prominence over the course of 2021, they started raising money. Uh, we did invest in both FTX.com and in FTX US. 
we did not lead any of the investment rounds at FTX. Uh, those were led by some larger investors, but we were participants in, in both of those rounds. So when did you guys actually know that things were going south? Because uh, things escalated fairly quickly, you know, when when CZ sort of tweeted um, and that they were going to sell a bunch of the FDT. Like it was sort of a, a timeline of 72 hours. Things really escalated. When did you guys actually know that things were going down in FTX and how did you kind of operate in? Like walk us through kind of that timeline. Yeah, it, it was during Breakpoint. So we were in Lisbon uh, and kind of watching the events play out uh, and also watching the community sentiment as things played out, right? It was like uh, a major topic of conversation, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, honestly, we didn't think there was going to be like this level of insolvency or, or this big of a problem. Uh, especially given the very large amount of equity capital that FTX had raised that should serve as a buffer. And in addition to that, this was a profitable business that made over a billion dollars in revenue in 2021. So there was quite a bit of money there. So we thought, okay, there might be like a duration mismatch um, or, you know, the capital is tied up in margin positions and it's going to take them some time to unwind it. Uh, and that's why, uh, you know, this is happening. We didn't think it was going to be an insolvency problem as it appears to be. Hmm. Was there any, so if I'm trying to remember the dates, it was like Breakpoint was November 4, 5, 6, I think it was. The Coindesk report by Ian Allison was November 2nd. Was there any like hesitation or like skepticism when, I don't know, what's, a, what's another moment, like Brett Harrison, for example, resigning in late September? Was there any sort of like, hmm, like Brett, good guy, seems like something fishy's going on, or like that just that doesn't really cross your mind when, when things are going so well? Um, certainly things like that did cross our mind, and we were investors in in FTX US. And so we we had a good relationship with Brett, and we still do to this day. Uh, and we we called actually Brett called us um, you know, after he had told Sandy was resigning or before it was made public to let the other FTX US investors know that was kind of the right thing to do. Um, and he explained, he's like, look, like I've been here for a little while. Uh, I've caught the startup bug. Uh, I want to go launch the startup. And you know, he's obviously now gone out the last So I don't think we, I don't know if he's announced the name for it, but he's building some sort of kind of DeFi crime brokerage type tools, something in that, in that arena. And, uh, we were like, look, appreciate you being forthcoming and candid about that with us. Uh, we'd like to take a look at your new startup whenever, whenever you, you launch it. Uh, we did not end up investing in it. But we always had a, a good productive relationship with him and he never alleged or alluded to anything being wrong and we never suspected anything. Uh, yeah. It was just kind of like a, hey, he's been, he left trading firm, came to kind of startup land that was like, got the startup bug, which pretty pretty reasonable thing to happen. So I think it's fair to say that, Tusha, what you said, which is I think a lot of people maybe have expected that there was a duration mismatch, but not the level of just outright fraud that was going on and just the, the loss that was being carried by Alameda. Like, as you look back, were there, like, what was your impression of Sam, like, throughout all this time? And, and like, what are the things that you guys got wrong in this whole process? Uh, so my impression of Sam is he is one of the most hyper-intelligent, hyper-motivated people that I've ever met. Um, and, you know, honestly, I didn't buy this whole 
media tour after the fact on like, oh, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, right? Like this guy talked to several of the most sophisticated investors in the world and got them to invest and including like sovereign wealth funds and, you know, just like giant asset managers, like, you know, some of the most storied venture capital funds in the world. Uh, And they all loved him because he told a really good story he was hyper aggressive and he was focused on addressing an enormous market. Uh, so I think, yeah, I, I think everyone's perception of him was pretty similar, right? Like this guy was kind of like a superhuman, um, right? But what I think was underlying that, that, that we missed was the complete lack of governance controls that anyone placed on him the complete lack of transparency um, into the internal operations. Now, look, when the CEO of the business goes to the CTO and says, please write this backdoor into the code such that it doesn't alert the auditors when I move this money, uh, there's very, very little that can be done from an oversight perspective to prevent that from happening. Um, But you can have some processes in place uh, right. If uh, you're checking to see where the money is, if, if there's an up-to-date balance sheet always presented, if you operate the exchange more like a DeFi protocol where everything is auditable in real time. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we as an industry will learn from this and move exchanges to operate more like DeFi protocols with real-time transparency rather than this periodic check-in process we have. The future of finance is not quarterly reports. That's, you know, that's an anachronistic 20th century thing. The future of finance is real-time visibility into everything that's happening right now. Yeah. And I think that's probably the one thing that could have prevented this. Yeah. So just to round up the FTX stuff, I know we there's other stuff we want to cover, but the last thing I want to touch on is what happens to the funds that are stuck there? Because I mean, you guys had meaningful capital there, as did other folks. You start to withdraw, you take some out, there's still some there left. Um, so what is kind of, what happens to those funds? I mean, the bankruptcy trustee will try to liquidate all of the assets that they have, um, some of which it appears they have already done based on some of the announcements that, the, that they have made, some of which they have not done. Um, and then everyone gets paid back. Uh, The big open question right now is whether there will be clawbacks for the funds that were uh, withdrawn right before the bankruptcy. But the question is, how do you enforce those, especially with international customers? And uh, like, it's just really messy, uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? And you don't want to treat people differently. You don't want to say, well, actually, only the Americans have to send the money back (laughs) and everyone else doesn't. Like, you know, that that creates lots of weird problems. Uh, so I think that's the biggest uncertainty. And then the next thing is just like, what happens to the investments that they made? For example, they led, you know, this investment in Anthropic AI, and we've seen this explosion in AI market caps and enthusiasm, and, uh, you know, who knows how much that's going to be worth or, or when that's sold. Um, so, you know, we are optimistic that there will be some recovery value for the creditors. Uh, however, it, seems overly optimistic to assume that it's going to be, you know, hundred percent that that seems unlikely. Well, particularly considering that lawyers are, you know, I think there, I saw a note today that they're up to date, like they 
taken 30 million in fees so far. And, you know, I think if we look at the Madoff case, like these guys will probably take meaningful cents on the dollar that is recovered. So, um, you know, that's yeah. a shame. Kyle, was this the, uh, I mean, you, you and Tushar have been in crypto for a while now, but I mean, obviously we're all used to like big ups and downs, um, both like in the portfolio, but also mentally. Was this uh, like the hardest mental thing to go through? Uh, yeah, definitely was the hardest mental thing. You know, 2018, that, that cycle, uh, like crypto wasn't taken seriously by the outside world. Like there was, I wouldn't say there was like a real spotlight on crypto and certainly not a spotlight on, on us in any capacity. Um, and having the year we had in 2021, then like everyone being like, oh yeah, look at these, these suckers, these idiots, you know, whatever, getting, getting dragged out and all this. It was a pretty shitty feeling. And then obviously people are angry. People have questions, people alleging we were involved. It's just like, just, a you know, uh, a conflux of just a, a lot of mostly negativity and then some legitimate questions, uh, it's just you know, a very frustrating time. And like, you know, we, we told the whole team like, Hey, y'all are going to be fine. Everyone's going to keep their jobs, keep your head strong, stick through it. Like, yeah, well, we'll yeah. get through this. And, and we did, we haven't let anyone off and, uh, our team continues to go strong. And now, you know, with most of the crisis behind us, we can now focus again on what we're supposed to do, which is find amazing investments. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I talked to some port codes and some folks at, multi, like people at Multicoin, I saw you guys just had a couple of big promotions. And like, I think the team team seems stoked right now. Portfolio company said you guys treated them really well. It seems like maybe the, the, the toughest place would have been with the LPs. I saw some like angry Twitter threads and, uh, you know, there was like a couple stories about the fund being down a lot and like clawbacks and like, how did, can you just tell us what happened with like the LPs? And obviously I'm sure 95% of them were like fine and understanding, but I'm sure there are outlier 5% cases where there's some, some angry folks. What, like, what, what was it like dealing with them? Look, uh, whenever you have events like this, like there are going to be angry people uh, and people react to anger in very different ways. Uh, we are happy to have a strong base of very diversified and long-term oriented LPs, uh, many of whom have been with us through multiple bear cycles, and they know the volatility can be pretty extreme. You know, we are not the risk-off part of anyone's portfolio. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not the, the purpose that we serve in, in any way. And, you know, everyone knew the risks, uh, which were pretty clearly disclosed. Yeah. But look, we had a bad year. Like we acknowledge <laughs> that, we own that, uh, and we learned from those mistakes. Um, yeah. That being said, oh. the only way to earn excess returns as an investor, the only way is to be contrarian and be right. If you are contrarian and wrong, you don't earn excess returns. If you are with the herd and right, you just earn market returns. Uh, and obviously, if you're with the herd and wrong, that, that's, that's pretty bad, right? Yeah. So the only way mm -hmm. to earn excess returns is to be contrarian and right. Um, and, you know, that's what we're focused on. Uh, we're focusing on capturing value across market cycles, not within market cycles. And while the hedge mm -hmm. fund is uh, investing in liquid assets, it's not investing with a six-month time horizon or a one-year time horizon. It's investing mm -hmm. with a longer-term time horizon. Uh, and we like to... You know, joke internally, uh, a lot of disagreements come down to a function of time horizon. On that awesome. point, uh, I do want to touch on sort of position sizing. At what point Solana becomes 
a disproportionate size of your fund. And it took a while, um, right? Uh, what is, what's it like, like managing that position in hindsight? Should you have sold uh, a chunk of that? Um, let's start there. And then also want to just generally touch in, uh, on Solana and how you perceive that ecosystem now. Yeah, I can go first on this and hand it over to Kyle. I would say, look, the people who are going to complain uh, are going to complain either way. If we had sold everything in 2021, they would have complained that we sold everything in 2021. If we didn't, they were going to say, oh, look, you're you're dumb for not selling everything in 2021, right? Uh, so like, we try not to pay too much attention to that. Uh, I would say that you know, we continue to have extremely high conviction that Solana represents the right design choices for a scalable blockchain. Um, and, and we like that much better than the L2 designs uh, that, that we're seeing out there. And we're focused on the long term, right? Like if you invested in ETH early on, and then you saw it go from 1400 bucks to 80 bucks in the last cycle, uh, that felt pretty terrible. Uh, but then if you had the conviction to hold on, you got to see ETH at, you know, what's it at right now, like 2000 um, and you know, much higher than that in 2021. So you just have to be willing to uh, accept that prices are set on the margin and that humans are really emotional. Uh, and if you want to outperform, you have to do things that other people do not do. Yeah, over-indexing on cost basis is, uh, it's like a bias in your logical reasoning. It's almost like sunk cost fallacy, right? Uh, everyone's familiar with sunk cost fallacy. The money that you already spent, like you've already spent it, that should not be a part of your decision moving forward. You should look at the facts and circumstances today. The same thing is true of looking at cost basis, right? Like the fact that it was priced at X, you know, however much time ago is not necessarily relevant to what is it worth today. You have to look at the price today. You have to look at what you think it's worth today and then make a decision based on that. And mm -hmm. you can't beat yourself up too much, uh, right? Because if you let me trade in hindsight, I would be the world's first trillionaire, right? Uh, and it's very easy to trade in hindsight, but you just have to you know, always be looking forward from the moment that you're in. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's the best way to be as rational as possible in a market like this. So talking about fundamentals like and circumstances and kind of updating your thesis, how much of the FTX impact, and we hadn't totally right after kind of the FTX stuff happened, and we asked him the question we'll ask you as well is, does that, does FTX and this association and the perception in the market that impact Solana's kind of BD efforts, which at the time were going very well, there are some teams may have left, other teams you know, it's a competitive kind of competing L1 ecosystem. They can go to Aptos, it can go to Avalanche, you can go to elsewhere, right? An L2. How much of FTX do you think impacts Solana um, viability or just the willingness of projects to kind of work there? And you know, obviously the DeFi ecosystem in Solana took a big hit. Um, and I am curious to just take your pulse on on Solana, the ecosystem, today and how you see it going forward, particularly in this competitive kind of L1 um, environment? Um, I guess I'll, I'll start here. There's this perception that like FTX was acting as the BDR of Solana or, or, or something or, or kind of some other hand wavy-ish statements. Um, and, and I don't think those are really rooted in reality. 
Um, the most important thing FTX did for Solana was build Serum, which was definitely legitimate at the time they did it in terms of like the effort, obviously they shipped the code and it was open and then other developers used it. Uh, that happened in 2020, mid summer 2020. Over the you know, next year and a half, two years, FTX did a ton of stuff all over. They were investing in exchanges like IEX and other kind of core CFI infrastructure, things like uh, Robinhood and StockTwits. Like they were making all these plays. They were doing stuff with Aptos and uh, and Sui, Investing Labs. Uh, they were investing in a bunch of NFT projects. They also launched an NFT exchange that was a centralized custodial NFT exchange. Um, FTX was very much acting in their own best interest, and you could follow their their dollars and like see where they're you know putting their money. Um, so this kind of uh, narrative of like FTX was like supporting Solana. I just like I don't understand the claim both in human capital resources or financial resources. Um, they were doing stuff that was in their own self-interest, but like that's mm -hmm. just, they were doing that, you know, that's capitalism, right? So um, we just never like agree to that characterization. Um, and obviously narratives are narrative and like, hey, perception is reality. So like, yeah, there's some element of that. And hey, if memes are a thing in crypto and people say, oh my God, Solana has problems now, then that kind of self-reinforcingly or it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, those problems now. Uh, but inevitably, those things go away. I mean, narratives are narratives, and they fade with time. Well, this intellectual substance kind of matters um, over the long term. Uh, I'll, I'll pause there to show you and add anything. Uh, I, I'll add something, which is just generally on this topic of BD for blockchains. Uh, right? People have, have been talking a lot about this. And I have some maybe controversial opinions on it, which is I think BD for blockchains is overrated. Uh, that's too much of a top-down approach. I don't think you're going to achieve like the next big breakthrough in Web3 by getting a Web2 company that's Web2 to their DNA to come and build or some other centralized company to come and build on Web3. And you're actually seeing that now in the depths of the bear market. Like that's the thing that gets dropped. Right, like Disney laid off their entire Web3 team because uh, you know they're cost cutting and they're like, ah, this wasn't core to us anyway. Uh, so I think the right kind of quote unquote business development for blockchains is really the bottoms up kind. Uh, it's the hackathons. It's getting people who are crypto native, who are building net new things that have Web3 in their DNA and they're not go going to scatter uh, in a bear market because one thing I can promise you is this won't be the last bear market. There will be another one, uh, you know, after the next bull market. It's going to happen again. Uh, and I think you want teams with staying power through that uh, rather than flighty big corporations. All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but it's true. Bear markets are building and everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you are building on hard mode. So QuickNode is, is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNode offers 
unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24-7 customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no gigabrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security, let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. All right, folks, it is time to talk about one of my and a lot of your favorite DeFi protocols, Synthetics. Synthetics has been pushing the limit in DeFi innovation since 2017 and has just started its most exciting transition yet with Synthetics V3. With Synthetics V3, any protocol can now tap into Synthetics liquidity to bootstrap derivatives markets. The transition has already started with Synthetics Perps. Synthetics Perps taps into Synthetics's liquidity layer and is a new primitive that developers can leverage to launch DeFi derivatives. The Perps product has been going incredibly well so far. Hopefully you've seen it. It's had some great traction hitting 500 million in daily volume this March. We know that liquidity rules DeFi and Synthetics is becoming the modular liquidity layer for DeFi derivatives. As a trader, you can trade Synthetics Perps with low fees in over 20 different markets at Quenta.io, Decentrix.com, and Polynomial.fi. And this opportunity set keeps growing with 10 new partners in the pipeline ready to launch integrations on top of Synthetics, including front ends, structured products, and institutional offerings. The team gave me a sneak peek of all this stuff. It's really cool. Would really recommend you check out synthetics.io forward slash perps to learn more. And if you're looking to build on Synthetics, hop into their Discord server, reach out to the team directly. Make sure to tell them that Empire and Santi and Yano sent you. Again, synthetics.io forward slash perps. You can also hop into the Discord server and reach out to the team directly. How do you balance um, like signaling conviction behind your bets, which you guys oftentimes love, sometimes like polarizing takes, um, while ensuring you don't miss the next wave? Um, I, I'm, sure I'm, I'm going to push back on this characterization. Like, uh, do we write clear theses on our blog? Like, if, yeah, obviously. Um, but like, that's not what makes a good investor a good investor. Um, all the entrepreneurs feel good when their VCs write nice things about them. But like, th- that's not what makes us good at our jobs. What makes us good at what we do is like, we help them with their problems. Uh, and that's like, hey guys, like you just put out whatever this marketing, whatever, and like, it's a here's a problem with it and like, you need to fix this. Or, hey, there's a strategy, you know, over the next 12, 24 months, like here's the four ways whenever this market plays out like which yep. tra- which one of these are you playing for and why what are the trade-offs like let's help you think through those discussions you know i, I think our core value prop is in, is in that stuff 
most of that doesn't make its way onto Twitter or onto our blog. It's just kind of inherently like private conversation. But like that, that that's what makes a good investor a good investor, not writing blog posts. Uh, so I, I, I think that's important to like just characterize like what what is our what what do we do and what does it matter. Um, in terms of like the follow part of your question of like you know if we make investment A does that risk us missing something in the next cycle. And that, that is always true across all investments and across all investment firms and all investments, um, because of like entrepreneurs being scared for competitive reasons or whatever, which is a legitimate concern people can have. Um, and like that's, that's just inherent risk to the business, right? I mean, there's nothing, no real way around it. Um, we do our best to be open-minded and to look at new things and explore and like push the ecosystem forward. I think probably the thing we've done that it's like the most generalized solution to that problem is just make it very clear to people that we will do weird new things. Um, we were the first money in graph. We were the first money in R. We, we were the first money in, uh, what's it called? In proof of physical work and in helium and high map all that stuff. And we've continued to signal time and time again, like we will go do things that on the surface feel pretty weird. Uh, and like, in our opinion, that's what matters. Because like the next entrepreneur is doing the next weird thing. We want them to see that we have a track record of being open-minded and trying weird stuff. Yeah, I guess let me, so, okay. So I, I completely agree with that. That's, I mean, yeah, that, that was well said. My, maybe where I was going with that though, is like, I think there's a lot of funds that were also long on Solana um, or that are long on Solana, but like they could kind of hedge their, like I was looking at who invested in Arbitrum and, and uh, Optimism. And like a lot of the firms that were long Solana also, like they, you know, invested in either Arbitrum or, or uh, Optimism. I don't think you guys did either of those rounds. And I'm like, you almost, this, this is probably not true. I mean, I'm curious if you think this is true, but like you almost couldn't have invested in, in L2s because it's so antithetical to like your global state thesis. And for another fund that like might have a similar thesis to you, they can kind of hedge and invest in Arbitrum or Optimism because like they're not as vocal about their Solana thesis. Yeah, you have to be contrarian and you have to be right. That's <laughs> right. the only way yeah. to make excess returns. There and you if, you, if you end up investing in every single platform, what you're really offering is an index product, right? Uh, you you specifically yeah. cannot earn excess returns. Like, it, yeah. you know, you do the math and it is not possible to do that. So actually what I see there is an inherent form of LPGP conflict, right? The LPs want you to go earn excess returns. They, they're not investing in an index fund for an actively managed fund, uh, but GPs hedging their bets, uh, you know, have a different set of incentives sometimes from the LPs. So we really try mm -hmm. to focus on, uh, you know, doing what we think is the right thing for our LPs and trying to earn excess returns. Above yeah. what the you, index or the market is going to earn. Yeah. How do you think about on that point fund size and structure? I mean, you guys went from a hedge fund, you then subsequently launch a venture fund, and then as AUM grows, naturally your capacity to earn excess return diminishes. And then so you know, a lot of these funds and that went from fifty million, hundred million to billions. It's, it's a very different strategy, I would argue. Uh, now the market has expanded substantially, but you could make the point that a lot of these funds are just tracking the index, right? Um, so how have you managed those kind of decisions internally? Yeah, it's a, it's a trade-off actually. Look, 
there are some ways in which having a bigger fund makes it harder to earn excess returns. Like you said, you have more money to deploy uh, and that means you have to either pay higher valuations or you have to do more deals that didn't end up working, uh, right? And, and mm -hmm. that makes it harder. Uh, but at the same time, having a larger fund allows you to in, like make opportunities or be involved in opportunities that you couldn't otherwise do. Right. Uh, if you've got a $20 million fund and like, I know what that feels like because we started with that, right? Like you cannot lead around uh, for, uh, you know, like a, a larger round, right? You, you, you just don't have the capital to do that. You can't price it. You can't help set the terms. You can't influence the project to uh, have the type of token design or other elements that you think are good. So, you know, I think it cuts both ways, right? Like size can... Be, it can make it harder to deploy that amount of capital, but it can also create optionality for you mm -hmm. that is quite valuable. So you have to kind of walk the tightrope and stay in the middle there. You don't want necessarily to be the biggest uh, because that's, uh, you know, probably too far on the spectrum, but you also don't want to be the smallest. Uh, I, you know, mm -hmm. I think just like Goldilocks, somewhere in the middle is just right. I think that probably the most valuable thing that a venture investor can do for any entrepreneur is not... The money, it's not the connections, um, it's telling them that they're wrong about something that ends up really mattering. Uh, and, you know, if you're an entrepreneur who doesn't prioritize that, I think you have a lower chance of success than uh, a similar entrepreneur who does prioritize that. So I kind of like that selection effect. Uh, and, you know, what I would tell entrepreneurs is like, go talk to our portfolio companies, uh, right? Like that's where you should build your assessment of if you want to talk to us, not based on Twitter, not based on, you know, political affiliations or, or something like that. Like that's, that's just not a pragmatic way to look at the world. And, uh, you know, you're just not being fully logical. Fair enough. So um, you talk Kyle, about sort of market size and how you think about that. And you were, we're now at that stage where a lot of people from the outside in, even internally, are questioning what is the actual use case of this industry. Um, not too dissimilar from the internet back in the day. But, you know, nonetheless, people are overly critical now. Maybe tell us recent investments you made or just theses that you've had in terms of the killer use cases that you're seeing. Um, in, you know, I've heard you talk about airdrops and the extent of uh, that could be useful going to market. But that only lasts so long. If you don't deliver a good product, people are not using it, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, only gets you so far. So, so walk us through kind of your thesis on what are the killer apps um, um, that you see over the next couple of years? Um, I'll highlight one area I'm spending a lot of time on right now. And I'm actually, I'm writing a blog post about this uh, at the current moment. Um, and that's, that's AI and crypto. Um, if you've been following me on Twitter the last few months, I've been talking a lot about AI, uh, not because multi-coin is pivoting or because we're launching an AI site or something that that's ridiculous. Uh, most of it is like intellectually very interesting. Um, and then most importantly, because I think there's going to be some big winners at the intersection of AI and crypto. And so I want to capitalize those opportunities um, in the existing multi-coin funds. Uh, I've identified these three areas at the intersection of AI and crypto that I think make a lot of sense. Um, and so those three are the first is basically Airbnb for your GPU. Um, there is an extreme shortage of GPUs today, uh, all major cloud providers. 
Uh, I don't think this shortage will be resolved anytime soon. Um, the obvious solution is like, hey, there are a bunch of graphics cards in people's computers all over the world. They're just not accessible in cloud environments today. So wouldn't it be nice if you could leverage these these GPUs uh, to do training and to do inference or these these large compute jobs? Um, we've been thinking about this problem for a long time. This idea has been floating around in crypto circles since like 2012. Like the very first iteration of this was proof of useful work when people were like still in the Bitcoin frame of mind and they were like, oh man, proof of work is great. If only we could make the hashes useful. Uh, and like, that was like the, the first iteration of that was, was GPU workloads. So, you know, I got into crypto in 2016 and that was being talked about. Lots of goal and lots at that time and I exec. We've, we've been following a bunch of those. A bunch of them, the, a new crop launched in 2018. Uh, we looked at a bunch of those. We didn't invest in any of them. Uh, the first investment we made in the Airbnb for your GPU, uh, you know, sector broadly, uh, is Render Token, which we invested in in May of 2021, so roughly two years ago. Uh, and uh, we invested in, in Render, you know, for later than year. At the time we invested in Render, we were not thinking about machine learning workloads specifically, although we knew that that was like an opportunity. Uh, but the render network, as its name would suggest, is focused on uh, 3D rendering jobs for like 3D designers. And uh, that that we we foresaw that, hey, if that grows big enough, they'll eventually move into ML. Obviously, Stable Diffusion hit in August of 2022, and then um, in December of 2022. And uh, it's pretty clear that like you can repurpose those render network machines for things that are not 3d rendering and so you know i think the market's largely picked up on this and a lot of people are, are discussing the opportunity for uh the render network in the context of of uh training and inference um and the render team has they've updated the network to support stable diffusion jobs um and they've, they've signaled that they're going to do a lot more stuff in ai jewel is the creator of uh render network i believe tweeted this morning actually about about this exact thing um there's more teams working in that sector than just render. We've made one other investment that what I'll loosely call Airbnb for your GPU. Um, that design space, there is not going to be winner take all. There's going to be subsecants there for, with different focuses. But that that's like obvious area number one at the intersection of AI and crypto. Uh, section number two uh, is uh, RLHF with token incentives. So this is reinforcement learning with human feedback. Um, if you follow kind of discussions around ChatGPT, yeah. OpenAI is pretty open about they do a lot of RLHF um, in training the models. Um, the most simplistic way to think about RLHF is whenever you use ChatGPT at the end of the response, there's an up and a down arrow, or sorry, a thumbs up and a thumbs down, uh, and you can tell the model how how it's doing. Uh, there's a lot more sophisticated ways to do RLHF than just thumbs up and thumbs down. Um, I'm not familiar with the intricacy of how they do the, the training internally, but they have large teams. It's pretty well documented that they have large teams of people who are providing sophisticated feedback to the developers and to the model itself directly um, in the function of RLHF. Uh, I think there's a pretty interesting opportunity to use token incentives uh, to facilitate large-scale RLHF for specific vertical kinds of models. Uh, I'm not particularly convinced that this is going to be useful for a generalized model like ChatGPT or BARD or um, Microsoft Sydney or what any of these. But as you get into vertical domains, things like medicine, things like law, things like finance, um, there's going to be a really big opportunity to 
have people who have this domain knowledge in, in whatever the area is who can who are trained to provide feedback in a systematic way and who are uh, being compensated uh, via token incentives for the work that they're providing. Um, I suspect there's going to be a lot does of that. that. Um, does this also tie into proof of humanity? You know, obviously like cap where the only thing that like you that, can sign like your cryptographic keys become the proof that you, there's a human behind it, so to speak, or I maybe I, I could just... Yeah, you're, you're one step ahead of me. That's the third major thing I was going to get into. Okay. Um, okay. The, the first the first iteration of RLHF, RLHF with token incentives is, is HiveMapper. Um, when most people think about HiveMapper, they think about getting tokens for driving, um, which is obviously the primary thing. But a secondary thing that's much less discussed, although this is live today, is all the map editors in, uh, in HiveMapper. And those people are receiving honey tokens for providing RLHF to the model, or in this case, the map. Uh, but they're literally going and doing the, the edits on the map. So we have the first kind of instantiation of this today. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more versions of this. And then the third major area at the intersection of AI crypto that I'm excited about is kind of this auth authenticity thing that you just alluded to, Santiago, um, which is basically like, there's kind of two versions of this. One is, hey, my camera took this photo and it's unedited. Um, this is an authentic image for my camera. In order to have that, you're going to need to have a private key embedded in your in your device, and I expect phones to add this in the next one or two years. Uh, but the other version of this is going to be, hey, I made this image in Photoshop with my own ant skills, and this is not produced by Stable Diffusion or Midjourney or whatever, um, and I need some sort of way to, to authenticate that as well. Um, in any of these systems, the private key is not like that hard conceptually. Often you have a private key and sign a message, but you need to when anyone else. Uh, views that image and looks at your signature, they need to know based on some sort of public source of truth that that is you. Um, and that if you try and lie, if you try and assert something that's false, there needs to be some sort of public, uh, basically demerit system of sorts, right? That basically kind of like uh, reduces your trust score or whatever. Um, I believe all of that will run over crypto rails. I, I think that third one is further out. The GPU stuff is happening today. The RLHF stuff is... is just now starting to happen, and I think we'll pick up in a pretty meaningful way. The authentication stuff for deepfakes is a little further out, but but almost certainly will happen. Sorry, I yeah, know that was a very long answer to the question. No, no, that, the, this is the kind of discussion. This is great. So uh, other than AI, any yeah. other, like, what's your take on, like, some of the more legacy stuff, like DeFi? I remember reaching out to you while I was a Parify, and you said, look, I, I just fundamentally think most value is going to accrue to the L1, so we'd rather not touch, like, DeFi is interesting. But from an investment standpoint, rather touch the L1. Look, I, I'm still excited about DeFi. Uh, however, I think you can't put the cart before the horse here. And what we've been doing as an industry is saying that people will use DeFi because of DeFi's own properties. Uh, and I think that's really hard because the problem is you have to get your money on chain first. And that has a lot of friction. You have to set up, sign up for an account somewhere, you have to transfer some funds in, you have to buy something, then you have to bother to withdraw to your own wallet. And like a lot of people are just not gonna go through that flow. I would say we've probably tapped out the population set that is willing to go through that flow, uh, where they're willing to send money and get it on chain. So I think DeFi is exciting once there are more wallets that are active that use DeFi not because of some philosophical properties or because they actually fully understand 
the value prop of it. Most people won't understand the value prop of it, but they'll use it because it's the cheapest, most convenient thing to do because otherwise they would have to go through a painful offboarding process to get their money out of crypto. And that is where the friction is. So what does that mean? Does. I think what, what that means is that for DeFi to take off, we need people to get paid on chain first. They need to get paid, you know, things like payroll is kind of the first thing that people think of. But, uh, you know, I would put in the proof of physical work or uh, DPIN, uh, decentralized physical infrastructure networks, into this, where, you know, you're driving around for HiveMapper and getting paid on chain for doing that. Uh, or you're helping build out the Helium network, you're getting paid on chain for doing that. Or, you know, you're doing this reinforcement learning with human feedback that Kyle was talking about, and you're getting paid on chain for doing that. Mm -hmm. And now your money is already on chain and you might as well use an on chain financial service rather than specifically having mm -hmm. to go seek it out. So I think DeFi is exciting, but it's like second horizon, right? I think we need to focus on right now what is going to get more users paid on chain. Uh, and once that hits a critical mass, I think that's when DeFi starts to get much more interesting. Do you bucket um, gaming? And are you excited about that being also a catalyst for people to earn? Yes, in absolutely. And, th and then that being the primary onboarding mechanism? Absolutely. I think gaming can be, can be really big. Um, now, you know, we haven't invested in a lot of games, but that's yeah, I was gonna not because we don't think games will work. It's because we doubt our ability to underwrite how fun a game is going to be before seeing the game. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, we, we don't like to spray and pray. We are high conviction investors. And if we can't build a conviction that this game is going to be fun, like how can you underwrite it? It doesn't matter how good the token design is or, you know, the fact that items yeah, yeah, are NFTs exactly. or something. If the game's not fun, the game's not fun. That's not it's fun. Not it's, it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. Walk us quickly what your like one minute interpretation or how excited you are about base. This is Coinbase L2 for anyone not familiar. Yeah, it's an interesting experiment. Um, I don't know how exactly uh, they're thinking about the regulatory aspect here with a centralized sequencer. This has been you know, one of my big open questions about layer twos, uh, right? If it's a centralized sequencer uh, and not even a permissionless centralized sequencer where it's like whoever stakes the most, it's just, there was this company and they are the centralized sequencer. Uh, well, then is this basically from a regulatory perspective, a centralized exchange with extra steps, uh, right? And, and so curious to see how that interpretation plays out. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what will happen. I'm excited that Coinbase is trying something innovative and trying to do something new. Uh, but the regulatory question here is pretty thorny. I think that applies to more than just base. I think that applies to the other centralized sequencer L2s as well. So would you feel differently about it, Tushar, if they did add, if they did start to decentralize the sequencer or like, what is the, what's the, what's the real hang up there? Is it the business model of L2s or is it about decentralizing the sequencer or a little bit of both? Uh, so I'll focus on decentralizing the sequencer. Uh, and, and I'm glad you asked that question. The, the question is like, why haven't they decentralized sequencers yet? And it's because it's extraordinarily technically difficult because as soon as you have leader rotation, now you have to come to consensus again. 
And now you're back to building an L1, uh, right? So you face all of the same engineering challenges that you would face when building an L1 uh, as soon as you start to decentralize the sequencer. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I hope that some computer scientists who are way smarter than I am figure out a way to do th this stuff. I don't currently see how they're going to be able to decentralize a sequencer without running into the same engineering problems that L1s run into. And then if you're just, you know, going to face those same engineering problems, you might as well use an L1 that makes those decisions, right? Like, why are you an L2 at that point? Hmm. That's okay. So like, let's say, so I don't know if you've talked to the, the Espresso team, but like, like there are a bunch of teams working on like decentral helping folks decentralize the sequencer. Let's say people figure out how to decentralize the sequencer. What are your thoughts just on L2s in general? And I think I'm, I, for, I forget if it was Kyle or Tushar. I think one of you guys wrote something about like just the broader business model of L2s, lack of like value accrual, lack of like fees being generated. What, I mean, what are your broader thoughts on L2s? Uh, yeah, lot, lots of thoughts here. <laughs> lot, lot, lots of thoughts here. Um, so, uh, people interpret a lot of my commentary as being super negative L2s, and that's not quite right. It's more negative to EVM than it is L2s. It just so happens that almost all L2s are EVMs. Uh, but like the, the kind of core problem is like, and I've been saying this for years, is in like lack of parallel execution. Um, yeah, you can have a bigger single computer on an L2 than you can for a Solana validator. Like, sure, instead of spending $3,000 a month on a server, you can send $25,000 a month on a server. But like, there's a limit to how fast you can execute transactions sequentially. Um, BVM just isn't designed to do parallel execution. And like, if you look at where all, most of the gains have come from in Silicon in the last 15 years, the substantial majority of gains come from parallelism. And so I just kind of see a fundamental mismatch between like the core execution strategy of the EVM and like what actually is physics in Silicon. Um, and so a lot of our, our, our reason we have been there L2s publicly is because it's presented in the context of a way to seal the EVM, but it's really just the EVF, like it, it's not actually anything new. There are exceptions, things like fuel are intellectually interesting. Um, but most part when people talk about L2s, they're, they're not referring to fuel, they're referring to EVM L2s. Um, and I don't think any of those L2s are actually addressing the scaling problem from first principles. Uh, whether you have an optimistic rollup or a ZK rollup, you're not actually making the execution of the transactions faster. Um, you are in the absolute most optimistic case compressing some of the data that ends up on the L1, which can reduce your gas cost per transaction, but reducing your gas cost per transaction does not mean necessarily increased TPS. Uh, you still need to execute all of the transactions. Um, we actually already have the counterfactual for what happens when you get a big server and you turn up the gas limit on the EVM. That's called BNV chain. Um, like we have the real world case study for this and no one at Binance even suggests they can break 500 TPS, right? Um, and this has been like what they've been iterating on for what, three, four years now, whatever it's been. Um, and so I just don't really understand this this kind of core premise and, and I don't think it's gonna get you to where, where you wanna be. Um, so I think that's comment A. Comment B is, a, is now not a comment on EVM. Uh, 
I just think that if you are in an ecosystem where L2s are the predominant scaling strategy, I believe that means L1s are overvalued and L2s are undervalued. Um, because at that point, all of the MEV um, is going to the L2. And that means all of the, basically the, the dynamic gas execution and also going to all of the L2. Um, and you're basically reducing all of the volatility of commodity vans to the L1 token. And uh, that's bad for the value of the L1. Um, and so, you know, like if, if you believe I'm wrong about EVM, EVM L2s are going to be, there's going to be 10,000 EVM L2s in the future. And that's going to be the future of scaling. Um, if that's what you really believe, then like, I think the right play is short ETH long all the L2s um, because they're going to have, a, there's, there's a huge, like, yeah, that's like a ratio of like, pair, yeah, yeah, because they come, become yeah. parasitic in the L1 basically. C correct. It's not that the L1s have zero value to be clear, but it just means like you're taking all of the excess profits that are currently being earned by the L1 and the L2s are, are, are capturing those profits basically. Um, and given like the size of the current valuation discrepancy between L2s and L1s is like roughly on the order of 20 to one. Um, like your margin for error in making that assessment is so large. It just seems like a phenomenal relative value trade. Uh, Kyle, wanna, on this point, uh, you, one of your tweets was fairly controversial, uh, which said that you didn't prioritize Only security one? and it wasn't. Well, well, I mean, if I, if I were to single-handedly think of like one of the more refer good point, one of the more like, um, controversial, I, I think was when you tweet, Hey, look, security is not as important. Um, and maybe it was taken out of context. Let's, I want to dig into that as you think about kind of how people build infrastructure and how you prioritize kind of, you know, speed and other criteria over security. Um, so, so let's dig into that for a moment because it ties in, I think, into all this L2 discussion. Uh, sure. So the tweet you're referring to is probably two years old at this point. Uh, it's in the beyond the context of ThorChain, which uh, had, had a number of hacks above traces or something. I can't even remember mm -hmm. now, but it's been at least a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, I still really stand by the core ethos of what I said, uh, which was basically that, that security is more important, excuse me, speed is more important than security. Uh, there's a couple of caveats around that. Uh, the most important of which is that's not a universally, absolutely true statement for all sayings at all points in time. Um, the world I live in is predominantly early stage, experimental, high risk sayings. Um, and I can make the argument that basically everything in crypto is still under that moniker in some form or fashion. Uh, and, and so my view is like, look, like you need to build a thing and get three, you know, go move fast and break things. Basically, uh, there is a point at which for any given asset or any given technology that, that, that stops being true and you need to move to a more conservative methodology around development security practices, uh, where exactly that point in time is, is pretty hard to ascertain ahead of time. And certainly varies depending on the nature of the technology aspect and much of other uh, social variables. Um, so I don't want to make any like generalized comments across types of protocols or technologies. Uh, so it does stop being true at some point in time. Uh, and that point of that is different to different assets. Um, but in general, like, I think people are too afraid of those bugs. Yeah. Now I don't mean that, like, look, some people get hurt when there's bugs and like, it's unfortunate, but like, to win, you got to move fast. And uh, I, I think people dramatically underappreciate 
the importance of speed. I want to tie a, a couple of things together here um, on the security comment as well as the L2 uh, conversation. Uh, I've asked a lot of people, you know, why they want to use L2s. And they say they want to use L2s because they, say, they believe that the L2 inherits the security of the L1. Uh, but this sounds very abstract and theoretical, right? Especially with a centralized sequencer. Because how do you actually inherit the security of the L1? Um, yes, things can't get reorged once the L1 has confirmed it. Uh, but that's not really the practical thing that, that most people are worried about. What most people are worried about is censorship. What they're worried about is that my transaction will get blocked, or they're worried that a, uh, someone will have preferential access to you know, front run your transaction. And that's the kind of security that, that they're really thinking about. Uh, so you know, I think that uh, this perception that an L2 inherits the security of the L1 is too broad of a perception. Uh, and yes, it does inherit some types of security, primarily on a double spend attack, uh, but it does not inherit the censorship resistance of the L1. And I think that's a major kind of flaw in the marketing mm -hmm. of um, inheriting security. Yeah, the other thing I'd say built on that is like, people say you can you can withdraw the L2 whenever you want, irrespective of how malicious the you know the sequencer is or whatever. And that's true, but then you're ignoring the reality of like, well, how long does that take? And like, what's the opportunity cost of your time? And like, if you are wanting to make a move and you can't, and you're like, oh, you have to wait four hours or you have to wait a week. Like there's a good chance <laughs> not four hours of that week is really, really, really costly to you. Um, that could be worth 5%. It could be worth 70% to you. Uh, and like, it's just like explicitly ignoring the notion of time or priority um, or any notion of uh, time sensitivity in these things. And, and I like totally just check that premise. Mm -hmm. If we were to um, put Solana here as well, I mean, there's been a number of restarts in the network um, to the point where if you're a DeFi protocol in Solana and this happens, I mean, it could have serious implications in terms of, you know, being liquidated, the restart of the network could be problematic. I'll push back too sharp for me in that case. I get your point around like security can mean many different things for different people, but the reorg to me is perhaps the most fundamental of why you want to build anything in the first place in crypto. Like, you know, I guess, this, this, you know, if, if there is a risk of a, of a reorg, which all these have not just in, you know, across ecosystems. I mean, I think everything is, is you know, there's just still a lot of infrastructure to be built, but I would think that the reorg is, if you can't solve that, then, why even building crypto in the first place? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying that you can't solve that. Actually, solving reorgs is one of the easier things, right? Like you have faster finality in proof of stake systems. Uh, and you see that with basically every proof of stake system out there, whether it's Solana or Algorand or uh, Cosmos, et cetera, right? Like they finalize every block and now that block is final. So that solves a lot of the double spend problem. For me, most of the value prop of crypto is not necessarily that. It is censorship resistance. It's permissionless access. It's that anyone can show up and start using it without having to talk to some centralized sequencer and hope that they're treated fairly. Uh, it's also mm -hmm. that anyone can start validating the chain. 
without hoping that, you know, oh, I, I hope I, I'm allowed to, um, right? Yeah, on that point, I mean, there's two things that come to mind. One is how easy is it for someone to spin up a, valid, a validator, right? And obviously Solana has a, the, the hardware requirements. This has been a kind of a criticism, right? The hardware requirements are more, it's more expensive. It's more difficult than in Ethereum. But um, so that's one. The other one is just on a nation state level, kind of on a regulatory front. You know, what are your thoughts around censorship at that level where it can be problematic if you're in a particular jurisdiction? I mean, China has always been the place where it's difficult, but as the regulatory environment evolves, it could be difficult in, in places even like in the U.S. So how do you think about censorship in that context? Um, I think the comparison of ETH L1 to Solana L1 validator costs is not necessarily the best comparison because the vision for ETH is to have the transactions going through L2s. So the question is, how much does it cost to spin up a L2 validator node for one of these rollups? Oh, wait, it's actually infinite. You're not allowed. You are, you are not permitted to do this. And if you were, it costs more, I would bet. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me because this is all private company information. I don't know how much these centralized sequencers spend on their server costs. They don't reveal this stuff. But I would bet with pretty high conviction that it costs more than running a Solana validator. Um, so I, I, I just don't know that I, that I buy that comparison. Hmm. Too short and tall, do you guys have all allocation to ETH? Just like ETH, the asset, not, not the ecosystem, but just ETH? We do. Yes. What's the percentage breakdown of like ETH to Sol? Uh, we don't talk about relative position sizing and actively traded things publicly. Fair enough. Well, I can tell you there's more soul than there is ETH. Uh, but but we're not <laughs> gonna get it, we're not gonna get into whether it's two to one or ten to one or whatever. Fair. Fair, fair, fair. Okay. Um all right, so I'm looking through some of these uh topics that JR put together and just like some things that might be interesting to talk about. And one of them that I found pretty surprising was um I don't know if one of you guys wrote this or JR wrote this, but Filecoin emerges as a meaningful eco ecosystem on par with ETH and Solana in terms of legitimacy. I would say that would uh, is thrown in the bold take uh, department. So I, yeah, I definitely need one of you guys to expand on that. Uh, I guess I'm one with this one. Uh, I've hated Filecoin for a really long time. Uh, and I've done a 180 in, in the last six months. Uh, my, my, the primary reason, in, I mean, a few things coming together. Um, one is after blockchain launches, my general observation is going to take one to two years to have blockchain to like become legitimate and do do what it's going to do. And conversely, if it doesn't become legitimate over the course of that one to two years, it typically falls into irrelevance and kind of dies. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily like mean that it stops producing blocks, but it kind of like falls out of public purview and consciousness. Filecoin uh, is two and a half years old now, so it kind of just passed that that threshold. And so I used the opportunity in September, October, November last year to start kind of diving into the Filecoin ecosystem as it hit the two-year mark uh, and was, was pretty pleasantly surprised at like, it was very clear that the, the rate of intellectual capital contributing was increasing. Um, so that's comment A. Comment B is uh, the Filecoin virtual machine launch. This is probably the most important thing. Uh, the Filecoin virtual machine launched uh, a month ago on Pi Day, so March 14th. And... Um, the Filecoin virtual machine is the EDM on Filecoin. Um, that does not mean like 
I mean, maybe there's going to be DeFi on Filecoin. I don't know if that's going to become a thing or not. That's not the, the right interpretation of it, though. Uh, the right interpretation of it is you will be able to uh, pre-program payments using EVM and also suit other other VMs as well, hopefully VSVM, uh, and those will be able to connect to Filecoin native bindings for the kind of three major primitives in Filecoin, which are storage, uh, retrieval and bandwidth, and compute. Uh, and uh, you'll be able to pre-program those payments, which means you can do things like permanent storage. That means you can have payments for retrieval markets. That means you can do have uh, conditional payments for specific types of compute workloads. Um, but basically, it, like it, it makes Filecoin programmable in the same way that like Bitcoin wasn't programmable, and then ETH made Bitcoin programmable. Not literally the, the Bitcoin asset, but like gave you a programmable asset ledger. Um, we are now introducing the notion of uh, programmable payments onto generalized compute operations for kind of the three basic primitives in, in computation. Uh, and that's a really big vision. Uh, mm. And so the FBM is kind of, kind of thing number two. Um, and then uh, I think number three is retrieval markets went live. Um, Firepoint's uh, native uh, retrieval market is called Saturn. It launched in January of this year very quietly. Uh, I think there's roughly a thousand nodes on it right now. Uh, Today, payments are not enabled on Saturn, so for now, it's all still in kind of like play money test mode. It's real data, but but play money. Um, but obviously, at some point, they're going to turn on payments and get this thing going. And uh, I'm very excited for the vision of the decentralized CDN. It's been like one of the sexiest kind of uh, North Star visions of, of crypto for a very long time. Um, and, and we're finally getting closer to that. I think as that comes closer to becoming reality, we're going to see a lot of really amazing things built on top of it. So... That kind of culmination of things has gotten me very excited about Filecoin. And like those are like all very direct Filecoin comments. Kyle, do you see uh, just as... one, one question on that? Is like uh, I remember the 2019 Multicoin event, um, Multicoin Summit in New York. The uh, I forget his name, the Arweave founder. I don't know, the Arweave founder. Sam. Red, yeah, Red pilled me on Arweave. Got like pretty excited about Arweave. Um, and it seems like some cool stuff has been happening with Arweave recently. Um, how do you think about like file? I mean, they're both decentralized storage networks, but my understanding is like Filecoin has proof of replication and proof of space time. Arweave has like proof of access, I think they call it. They have different economic models, um, maybe different target use cases. Like Filecoin seems more like almost B2B, like large amounts of data, like archives, backups. Arweave's more like social media posts and like web pages, which is maybe a little more B2C. Like, how do you think about the difference between, between Arweave and Filecoin? Uh, the primary reason we got to tell about Arweave back in 2019 was its simplicity. Um, yeah. at the time, Filecoin literally didn't exist. Um, and we understood even back then that like Filecoin was going to be a really complex animal when it did launch. Uh, what we liked about Arweave was pay once, throw it in the sky, it gets stored forever. Uh, and you don't really have to think any more than that. And there was, there was a real value to that simplicity. Uh, and that assessment was fairly, uh, not popular at the time. Although I think a lot of people came around to appreciate the importance of that, um, uh, over the next kind of call it 24 months. Um, uh, a lot's happened though. That's been four years since we, yeah, it's been four years since we bought our first RWE token. I think we bought them in May of 2019. Uh, so it's been a while. Um, and at that time, the Filecoin ecosystem has matured. It's been a lot more usable. Um, today, I, I look at these things as, today I look at, I look at Filecoin as basically being a superset of Arweave. 
Um, using the FVM, you can build uh, a permanent storage system that is functionally, you know, offering the same type of guarantees as Arweave. What's nice about the FVM is uh, it is you can parameterize it in ways that you can't parameterize Arweave. Arweave isn't really parameterizable. Um, there's one parameter which is pay for a file and then however many people replicate it because of like the crypto economics of the Arweave proof of access gain is how many replicas there are. And there's no notion of measurement or concreteness. It's all probabilistic. Uh, as is one way to parameterize permanent storage. Uh, Filecoin gives you infinite more optionality in the FDM, where you can say, hey, I want five copies of this. I want 25 copies of this. I want three copies in each continent. Um, but you can parameterize how you want it to be stored in any way. And because you have proofs of replication uh, and proofs of assigned, you can enforce the different parameters um, in the system. So mm -hmm. uh, on one hand, that optionality creates more complexity in terms of like you have more decisions to make as a developer. On the other hand, uh, saying there's one permanent source configuration for everyone in the world actually is not not right to me. I, I think you need to be able to parameterize these things. And so uh, mm -hmm. I, I look at them as, as they will coexist for a long time, but the file point definitely is vastly more configurable um, than Arweave is. Yeah. Guys, uh, last topic I want to touch on is is Bitcoin. You talk about stuff that you've changed your mind on. This is something that I was I've changed my mind on recently and paid more attention. We have Muneeb on talking about you know changes, pretty fundamental changes in the Bitcoin ethos, at least to explore, you know, DeFi and Bitcoin and other kind of um, um, propositions. So I'm curious if you guys internally have paid attention to that. If that's something that you know, you you get excited about you're investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem, or just increase your allocation of Bitcoin. Uh, we do own some Bitcoin, uh, but you know, I would say that the benefits that Bitcoin has are potentially shared by other L1 assets as they become more mature. The key thing that Bitcoin has is it has a big head start. It's been around for a while, right? And I remember in 2020, I was talking to you know a bunch of traditional investors, you know, the, the Wall Street types. And the perception then was that, yes, traditional investors will come into crypto, but it's going to be Bitcoin only. They're really only looking at Bitcoin. They like the digital gold thesis because they understand that uh, and... You know, that, that's really it. Then something really big happened in 2021, which is we saw that those big institutional allocators said Bitcoin and ETH. And now everywhere that you go look at Bitcoin, it's kind of Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, it, basically in any portfolio, any institutional investor, right? Like ETH has caught up with Bitcoin in a meaningful sense in terms of liquidity, in terms of recognition, uh, and in terms of a perception of neutrality. Yes, it's not as you know neutral as Bitcoin is. Vitalik didn't disappear like Satoshi did. They still do hard forks and stuff. But the perception of it is Bitcoin and ETH on similar footing. ETH is what, five, six years behind Bitcoin? So when you play that out, right? Like right now you can say Bitcoin has been around twice as long as ETH. 
a decade from now, it's you can't say that anymore, right? Bitcoin was around five years longer, but you know, both things have been around you know, 15 years and, and 20 years, right? So I think things change over time. And you know, now I'll expand that. I don't think ETH is the last one to get into that club of Bitcoin and ETH. I think that the most used smart contract platform will get into that club uh, and it will become neutral over time uh, or perceived as more neutral, especially as hard forks slow down or stop as the tech ossifies. Uh, mm-hmm. And it'll have more users, which ultimately I think is the thing that matters the most is having more users, getting more people paid on chain. Like I was talking about earlier, you're not going to see that on Bitcoin. You're not going to see more and more people get paid on chain Bitcoin. That's extremely unlikely. Um, but you will see that hopefully on Solana or hopefully on Ethereum or, you know, another smart contract platform that does more mm-hmm. useful stuff. So, yeah, I think Bitcoin has its moment uh, right now with, uh, you know, inflation looking like it's sticky and uh, a whole bunch of macro things that uh, I do not consider myself an expert on. Um, but I think mm-hmm. that it's not as uniquely positioned to capture those tailwinds as some might like to believe. Yeah, fair enough. I want to end this uh, just with a question that um, I had Ben, my former partner, clarify here last week. And I asked him this question and I'd like for you guys to also answer this is what would you tell a younger version of Kyle and Tushar entering the space today that you wish you knew kind of in however so many years you've been in the space? Follow your heart, man. Like, don't don't get caught up in the the drama and the pressure of crypto Twitter. It's funny you say that because uh, Ben, I, I'm sure he has an alt account, but he doesn't have a Twitter profile. <laughs> I would say your job is to earn excess returns, and the only way to do that is be contrarian and be right and that requires bravery. Like you need to be willing to be wrong in order to be able to be contrarian and right. So don't be afraid to be wrong in public. Well, I think that's a good way to end it. Um, Guys, thanks for coming on. I I think it's uh, been a while and it's great to hear from you guys. Um, So appreciate uh, the takes and and you guys answering some of the harder questions. Uh, um, We'll certainly have to have you on later on in the year as things progress. And, uh, but otherwise really appreciate the time and, and uh yeah thanks for coming on thanks guys appreciate you having us on guys